0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. We're going to be turning in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. So if you would go ahead and take a moment and turn to Acts chapter 8. What we're going to be looking at this morning is, is centered around this question. What do you do when you are scattered? What becomes the content of your life? What becomes how you live and you move and you breathe? When you're scattered, when you face moments of struggle and trial in life, how do you respond? More specifically, what do you preach? What do you say? What what becomes the words on your lips during moments like these? So we're gonna read from Acts chapter eight this morning. If you are there, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture. Acts 8 begins, verse one. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then even Simon himself believed." And after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought, you could, you thought you, the gift of God could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth." The eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or another person? So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, Look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Then he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and as he was traveling and evangelizing, Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit, help the text come alive to us so that we may learn in order to live for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the beginning of Acts chapter 8, the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem. And up until really chapter seven, God has been continually doing amazing works and wonders. People have been coming to faith in the Messiah, and God has been blessing the church. And as we go into chapter seven, which we studied last time, and chapter eight today, God is still blessing the church. But the church is going to experience a very different reality. We saw last week with Stephen that as he preached to his Jewish brothers and sisters, that some of them came against him, and, and they began to not like what he was saying, and we ended last week's teaching with Stephen being stoned to death because of what he was saying about the Messiah. In Acts chapter eight, Jesus' followers are in Jerusalem and they're experiencing significant persecution. And they're being persecuted because of the message of the Messiah, which is what they preached. Now, the message that Jesus was the Messiah was something that challenged first century Judaism and it threatened the power of the Jewish ruling class. It, it went against everything that that Judaism, at least as leaders in Judaism, generally stood for it 's kind of ironic because here you have spiritual leaders in Israel, like the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees who are very much Um, supposed to be leading the nation and and leading God's people, Israel, to love and to worship God. And yet these spiritual ones are people who who are very blind. They're blind to what the Messiah was doing in their midst because of their arrogance and their pride. And, And so imagine just for a moment that you are a messianic believer at this time. You've just come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, that that He died and rose again, and that He alone has covered your sins by the shedding of His blood. And so naturally, you want to share this news with everyone that you meet, because your heart's been made right with God. You now stand before God blameless because of the work of His Son. And, And you have joy because of what God is doing in your life. And so that joy just wants to overflow. But as you begin to share this message, um, those around you turn against this message. Uh, They harass and they oppress you because of your belief. Furthermore, some ravage. And and the term used in the first couple verses here of chapter 8, when it describes Saul and how he ravaged the church, it's a term that's used of a wild beast tearing a carcass to shreds. All right, some ravage, they tear you apart, you and your friends and your family who have trusted in Jesus the Messiah. Let me ask you a question, how do you feel? How do you feel? Perhaps more importantly, how do you respond? What do you do in response to this? How do you seek to honor God in the midst of this trial? Well, the text says, beginning in verse four of Acts chapter eight, that that the early church was scattered. All right. Many scholars believe that it is specifically referring to Hellenistic Jews here because of the violent response to Stephen's speech. And so they scatter. They leave Jerusalem. Some of them head west. This is a photo that's taken to the west of Jerusalem, down towards, um, down towards the Dead Sea. And so you can kind of see some of the surrounding area. Here's another photo, because some of them head east they head down into the Shephala region they head down in towards towards the ocean towards the Mediterranean Sea and some of them head north now we're going to follow a man named Philip and Philip heads north and he heads to a place called Samaria but here's one of the kind of the big ideas i want you to get wherever these disciples of Jesus went they preached. As God scattered them, they went and they preached. What do you do when you are scattered? Now, the idea of preaching here uh, comes from a Greek word, and it's the word euangelizo. and in a general sense, this word means to bring good news, okay? That's the general sense. In a more specific sense, and this is how it's being used here, and and the reason I tell you what this word is, is because it happens five times in chapter eight. So, So there's a big idea that the writer, Luke, is wanting you to get. As they went, they preached, in general, to bring good news. But specifically, here's what it means. It means to proclaim the divine message of salvation. All right? As they are going, they're sharing this good news that Jesus has come, that Jesus has died, that Jesus has paid for your sins so that you can live forever with God, but even more so that you can live right here and right now in the authority and the provision of God in your life. They're telling people all about Jesus, their Jewish Messiah, all right? So you'll see this in verse 4, verse 12, verse 25, verse 35, and verse 40. It's not always translated preached. Sometimes it's translated proclaimed. Some, sometimes it's translated uh, a number of different ways, evangelizing, for example. But, but the idea behind this is that they are proclaiming the divine message of salvation, which, by the way, is really good news. So, where do they preach? Acts 1.8, if you remember, uh, says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the world. Where are we at right now? That's right, we're, we're in Samaria. We were just in Jerusalem in the Judean area surrounding Jerusalem, and now the gospel is going forth by means of really scattering and Philip goes up, and he begins to preach in Samaria. And so I have a photo here for you. Uh, if you'll notice, the blue, that is Jerusalem in, in the surrounding Judean area. If you go north to the purple, the purple is Samaria. So you can kind of get an idea of where, where things are headed. Now, Samaria. This is an interesting place for this to go. Because Jews and Samaritans, they had a relationship, but it was, it was complicated. Uh, All right, it was really complicated. Jews and Samaritans despised one another. And this goes back hundreds of years. All right, so we're in the first century AD, back in 722 BC. So literally over 700 years before the time of this occurrence, um, the Assyrians they came in and they conquered Samaria and they took many of Samaria's inhabitants away and they brought Gentiles to the region, people who were not Jewish. And the Samaritans were descendants of those Jews who remained in the land because a lot of Jews got taken off, but not all Jews got taken off. The Jews that stayed in Samaria, they intermarried with these Gentiles. Now, there was, after that, there was a rift that continued to occur. And, and eventually, it, it got worse and worse and worse. And the Samaritans eventually came to the point where they established a rival place of worship on Mount Gerizim. Because true Jews, you know, fully-blooded Jews, looked down upon the Samaritans for intermarrying during this time of exile. They, they considered them to be not real Jews. Jews. And so this rift grew and grew, and other things happened. But you, you come to the point of the New Testament writings in, in Jesus' ministry, and he even tells a story about a, a good Samaritan. And when his hearers heard Samaritan was the one who came and he brought healing, and he brought grace, and he brought um, care for this person who had been beaten on the road, that was a landmark kind of mind shifting. Um, reality for the Jewish people of that time. Of course, the Samaritan wouldn't do that because the tensions were so high. And what I love is that Philip could have gone anywhere. Philip could have done anything. He he could have just wanted to take the message of the Messiah to his own people, just to the Jews. Um, But he doesn't. He goes to Samaria, and as he goes, he preaches. He wanted to share what Jesus had done in his life. He could have allowed bitterness or resentment from being scattered and being pursued out of Jerusalem to, to, to be the focal point of his heart and his mind. But he had experienced Jesus. And the amazing thing about when we experience Jesus is that it, it brings joy and it brings peace. And, and those things cannot help but be shared. Twice in this passage alone, we see a response to the gospel, and one of the main hallmarks of that response is that there was joy in that city, and that's what we see in Samaria. Now, as Philip preached and he proclaimed the Messiah, notice what the Holy Spirit did through his preaching. There were wonder signs. Unclean spirits left people. Those who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Joy came to that city. The Samaritans responded to the good news of Jesus. They believed, and as a result of their decision to follow Jesus, they were baptized to outwardly demonstrate the inner work of transformation that God had done in their lives. And this pattern is very consistent with Acts. If you remember back when we studied Acts 2, and all the people hear Peter's preaching— And they're cut to the heart and they ask Peter, they say, what must we do in response to the gospel which you have just shared us? He says, repent and be baptized. In other words, turn your, your attention and your gaze off of yourself and off of your problems. Repent of how you have sinned against God and say, God, I need you. And then demonstrate that inward change by being baptized. We'll talk about baptism a a little bit later in our teaching, but baptism always follows trusting in Jesus and that act of repentance and turning from sin. And so in our passage, we're then introduced to a man named Simon who Philip meets in the course of his preaching. In uh, verse nine, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. I like to look at Simon this way. Simon is a case study in what happens when we become enamored with a what's in it for us mentality. Simon was an incredibly powerful guy. He had been revered, and people held him in awe because he could do various things. He, he was a practitioner of sorcery, magic, and witchcraft. And the Samaritans knew of him. They held him in a high honor because they had seen him do great works. But when they heard the message of the Messiah, I want you to notice even Simon believed Philip's message. And I love that for so many reasons, but one of the reasons is this. Sometimes we think that people of greatness or power, think of whomever you want right now in our country, in our world, people of notoriety, people of position, we think that they are beyond God's reach. Simon, again, reminds us, no one's beyond God's reach. God's message of salvation is for all, even those who think they have everything. So Simon was a person who the Samaritans knew and they held him in high honor, but even Simon believed Philip's message. Even Simon believed Philip's message. And it's interesting, he saw great works, or the people saw great works, but what they believed was, the text says, was the message. Not just the works, but the message of who Jesus was and what Jesus came and did. So verse 14 says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And here we find out more about Simon's story. Simon, who had believed the message that Philip preached, and who was baptized, when he saw that the Holy Spirit, verse 18, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit." After the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit from the laying on of hands, Simon wanted a part of that power. He saw something in the apostles and he said, how can I use this for my own gain? He recognized that God had done a work through the apostles, but more than wanting the Holy Spirit to live inside of him, and to guide him, and to teach him, and to work through him, he wanted the power to bestow the Holy Spirit to others for personal gain. Simon, you see, had a, he had a heart problem. And the text tells us that there was a root of bitterness and that he was bound by iniquity, which are heart problems. Now, bitterness is an interesting word here. Bitterness is, by the way, not a fruit of God's Spirit. Paul tells the Christians, the Christians in Ephesus. These were people who used to walk in ungodly ways. He says all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you along with malice. He 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 tells them get rid of bitterness, believers. Because even when we come to faith in the Messiah, we can have roots of bitterness that stem from our former life, back when, before we knew the Lord. Bitterness at its root, friends, is a heart issue. Bitterness is thinking that you can experience God's peace while stubbornly following the wickedness of your heart. It's thinking that what I want out of God is more important than what God wants to do in and through me. You see, if we're not careful, our hearts can be poisoned by bitterness too. As I was thinking about Simon during my study, study time, I began to just ask myself, Jeremy, how, how often have you wanted God's power to work Something in your life rather than just wanting God to live and move through you. How often, Jeremy, have, have you wanted to be able to fix this and manage that and control this and demonstrate that you are capable when really God just wants to work through you for his glory? See, see, it's an amazing thing when the disciples worked and they allowed the Holy Spirit to move through them, man, God did incredible things, and God received the glory and the praise. But when we take control and we say, how do I manage this for myself? We really, we rob God of glory. So there's great news with this, though. While Simon had a heart issue, and while many of us have heart issues from time to time, God is in the business of dealing with heart issues. He can handle caring for your heart. But key to him doing that is us coming to repentance. Notice what Peter tells Simon. He says, therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. He doesn't write Simon off. He says, Simon, repent. Ask God to forgive you. And, and I love the idea of repentance in the scripture because it comes from a Hebrew word that means to literally turn around and to walk in the opposite direction. And so if you're heading down uh, a bitter route or, or another route of sin, what repentance looks like is to turn from that and walk over here. And this is a struggle for us sometimes, because sometimes as we're heading down towards the, this path of sin, we just want to move our walk a little bit so that we're not really walking in direct defiance of God. We're, we're really just, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to split the middle here. Well, let's not go straight against God. Let's go this way or this way. But, but, but friends, repentance is turning from that which is evil and clinging to that which is good. Let me ask you a question. Where's your heart this morning? Are there any roots of bitterness or sin in your life that you need to turn from and you need to repent before God and you need to ask forgiveness and you need to walk in the other direction? As Philip preaches, he continues to preach how God has taken people who were once going in the opposite direction of his teaching, and how God has saved them, and how God is equipping them to move in the power of his Spirit towards a life of increasing holiness. And Philip, we are going to find, is now going to take this message to a different place. Holy Spirit comes to Philip and he says, Hey, I want you to get up and I want you to go. And I want you to go down to a road that's between Jerusalem and Gaza. All right, very specific directions, by the way. I have a picture to kind of show you where this is. Where's is Philip? So you see um, up there in the top right, you have Jerusalem. You have Ein Hainye. I probably butchered that. Sorry about that. But you have they're in the mountains when you're in Jerusalem. And so you're coming down off of this mountain area, and you're coming down into the Shephelah region. That's the more green region here. And this is a, a likely pattern that that Philip may have walked, coming down from Jerusalem, coming all the way over to Gaza, all right? The text says that he runs to meet a chariot at one point. He's probably on foot. He's, he's hiking a little bit, and he comes on this desert road, he, I I love Philip's obedience, by the way. It's, hey, get up and go south to the road, verse 27. So he got up and he went, all right? Boom, boom. Just, just, just go. Just go do it. And there was an Ethiopian man, and the text spends some time to describe this man to us. It says that he is an Ethiopian, he's a eunuch, he's a high official of Candace, who is queen of the Ethiopians, and he's an he is um, in charge of her entire treasury, and he had come to worship in Jerusalem. There's five just like boom, 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 boom. They're giving you a lot of content about who this man is. Um, Who is this Ethiopian? He's a man from the area of Moreau, all right? And Moreau, I believe I have a, a wider geographical picture for you. Next slide, if you would. There we go. Here's a Roman road. This this Roman road is a first century Roman road, likely that one of the ones that Philip may have traveled on during this part. Next slide. Please. There we go. And oh, yeah. So here's all the green area that you saw before. This is the Shephala region. This is a major route that goes throughout that area going from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's the next slide I'm going for. Yes. So fantastic. So up here in the kind of top center, you have Judah. All right. It's kind of small, but it's a long ways. Judah, and you have all those areas within there. Where this Ethiopian is from is where the red circle is down here, all right? He is upstream from from, uh, lower Egypt. You have lower Egypt and you have upper Egypt. He's what is in now modern-day Sudan, is where he is from. So he has traveled a decent long way. And um, he's from a place called Moreau or Nubia. And the culture in that area rose to power and it lasted about 700 years. And it became wealthy from ironworking and from trading their goods eventually with Greece and Rome. So it's not crazy to think that he would be up in the Israel area because he's in charge of the treasury. They would have officials going back and forth, making trade agreements and all this kind of things. We're told why he's up there though. He was up there to worship in Jerusalem, but he went a long way. And I want you to just kind of hit remember with this picture, because as he leaves, it's important where he's going back to after he encounters Philip. So Philip finds him. The Spirit says, I want you to run up to this chariot. (laughs) It's just kind of bizarre. I want you to run up to this chariot, and he finds a guy who's reading, um, the prophet Isaiah aloud. It's not crazy for them to read out loud. I've got a picture of a scroll of Isaiah 53 that we'll show you in just a second here, and you kind of have to read aloud to know where you're at. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading, and he says to the man, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian official says, how can I? He says, unless someone guides me. And so he invites Philip to come up and sit with him, and he shares with him the passage that he is reading, Isaiah 53. He was led like sheep to a slaughter, and his lamb is silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? All right, here's a man of great influence, great power, great responsibility. He finds himself reading the prophet Isaiah, coming back from a time to worship in Jerusalem, which tells you some things too. It, it, it means that he is likely a God-fearer or a Jewish proselyte. The, the fact that he is a eunuch may be a God-fearer more than that, because the scriptures talk about eunuch, someone who is sterile. Parents, I'll let you describe that later and take that from there. Um, um, but, but he's a guy who has come up to worship, and he's leaving, and he's saying, what is this talking about? Because he loved the Jewish people. He, he was reading their text all right? Part of this had become him. He wanted to worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But so he comes to it, and he says to Philip, what is this talking about? I, I get who, I get, I get what they're talking about, but who is this man? Who is this describing, himself or someone else? And, and Philip says, wouldn't you like to know? And he, the text says he begins with that passage, and he begins to tell him, he begins to proclaim, he begins to preach, he begins to euangelizo the message of Jesus, the Messiah, beginning with that scripture. Now, wouldn't you love to hear all the stories that Philip shared? I, the curiosity person in me would love to hear, where did he take him next, and where did he take him next, and how much did he tell him of this, and did, did he tell him about this? Love to be a person in that in that carriage or in that in that chariot, but in the process of telling this person about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah who died for the sins of the world, you can imagine Philip could share with this man how even though he wasn't born a Jew, I mean he was he was an Ethiopian, but this man could have peace with God through the work of the Messiah. Philip was a guy who did not keep good news to himself. Philip was a guy who, when he was scattered, he preached. It just came out of him because it had, it had to, all right? It had to come out of him. And the Holy Spirit is working through Philip because you see, in verse 36, in response to the hearing of the Word of God and the truth of the gospel, the Ethiopian official commits his life to Jesus, and he asks to be baptized. He says... Uh, and, and I love this. As they were traveling down, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? You know, it, Philip had told him, you can just bank on it. Philip had told him, when you turn and you repent from your sin and you go towards God, that's repentance. And what follows repentance for the first time is baptism. Because baptism is a, is a recognition that God has done an inner work inside of you. And the Ethiopian's like, hey, there's water. Can we do this now? And so I, I have a picture of Ein Hainyeh. And uh, I believe, go, there we go. Oh, this is modern Nubia. This is, or th- these are the ancient ruins that the guy came from. Next one, please. All right. Here's, here's one of the probable sites of, of baptism. You know, when you were baptized in the first century, the word baptism, baptizo in Greek means to dip or to immerse, it means to go all the way under the water, it means to you're you're all getting wet every last bit of hair, everything is getting wet, and so this is a spring this is a place where they would have potentially done a baptism because there was sufficient water to do baptism, next slide please if we have another one, there we go Isaiah 53 scroll, there's the one I was talking about, the portion that the man is reading is the one in the little box right there next slide please All right. so we have Philip who, who comes to this man and, and and the man says, What would keep me from being baptized? And he says, If you believe with your heart, you may. Just the fact that he's saying, What would keep me from being baptized? signifies that he has placed his faith in Jesus the Messiah. And then he ordered the chariot to stop. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. So after Philip leaves there, he's down maybe in the Gaza area. He goes to Azotus, the text says, and then he goes up to Caesarea. But wherever Philip goes, Philip continues to preach and to preach and to preach what God has done for him through the work of the Messiah. So, I ask you a question. I think I mentioned this at the beginning. What do you do when you are scattered? What do you do when you're scattered? When situations may push you out of where you are at, how do you go forth from there? One of the things we learned from Philip is that with joy we go and we preach, and we preach, and we preach. We, we, we become people whose lives are marked by the gospel whose lives are centered around how can I help this person come to understand in a way that's right and true and appropriate? How can I help this person understand the gospel in a way that's right and true and appropriate? We all have a message that we proclaim, all right? We always proclaim something. What do you proclaim? Another thing I want you to think about, where is the Holy Spirit leading you to share? I I love that the text tells us that the Spirit came and He told Philip, Go here, do this. And it's a little vague sometimes, but clearly, Philip was led by the Spirit to preach and to share. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to share? Sometimes it doesn't require traveling to a different region, but sometimes it does. I love that picture I told you to save the mental image because this Ethiopian is going to go down and he's going to go over to Egypt and he's going to go up the Nile and he's going to go a long ways away from where Philip met him. What do you think he's going to do? The text says his heart is filled with joy. He rejoiced. As he goes, he's going to share that joy with people and share that joy with people. And I love it because it's a great challenge to me. How do I walk out of this building today? How do I share what God has done in and through me, through the work of his son? Couple last questions. What what stake in the ground might you need to take today? Is it baptism? I I love the immediacy of the text here. Um, When I came to Christ, it was probably several years. uh, I don't have exact dates, but it, it was probably, it was several years between the moment which I accepted, when I accepted Christ at, at a, um, an event we, we were at, and when I was baptized. And I love how the, the Ethiopian is like, there's water, let's do this now. Let's put the stake in the ground now. Maybe for you, a stake in the ground is that you have believed the message of the Messiah, that Jesus died and rose again, and maybe you need to be baptized. And we would love to talk with you about that. Maybe for you today, though, the stake is different. Maybe The thing you need to be reminded of is that when you are faced with tendencies toward bitterness or anger or jealousy or all those things that Simon struggled with, you need to choose joy. and You need to turn to God and say, God, I need your spirit to work joy out in my life. Friends, that comes when we yield and we yield and we yield to the working of God's spirit in our life. So I don't know what the... um, what the exact message for you today is, but I know it is this. As we go, what do we do? We so We preach. We preach. We preach. We share with people the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And we're going to be ending our service this morning a very, very cool way. Um, I've got some friends, and, and Pastor Clint is actually going to be doing the baptisms this morning. We've got two young men who want to be baptized, and I just... Oh, it's so fantastic. And just one, one word before, before I hand the mic over. When people are baptized, we applaud. And we, we don't applaud them, though we do applaud them. We applaud what God has done in their life, because each one of us has a different story, and theirs is unique, theirs is special, and God has worked in it. So when they come up out of the water, being reminded that they are buried in the likeness of of Christ's death and they're raised to walk a new life, we celebrate because that's something that many of us here have experienced personally. We've been saved from our old, our old man, so we applaud the Lord, but we also applaud them and we encourage them as they seek to follow the Lord in um, their life.